Welcome to the Fresh RN Podcast. The information contained in this podcast is meant to supplement your existing knowledge and not replace it. Always refer to your state board of nursing, standards of care, and respective institutions' policies to guide your practice. All identifying patient details have been changed to protect their privacy and remain compliant with the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. Thanks, nurses. Stay fresh. all that beautiful bean footage. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, guys? Welcome to the podcast. This episode is about code STEMI, code stroke, and code sepsis. My name is Katie Kluber. Hey, I'm Elizabeth Mills. And I am Melissa Stafford. So I'm actually going to let Elizabeth really just run this episode because she wrote this stuff and it's wonderful information. So these three situations are considered medical emergencies and I wanted to focus on three these three because they have specific algorithms slash protocols in dealing with their treatment and um, you see it in the emergency room but on the floors I feel like nurses may not necessarily know what to do right away when they come across these situations so I really wanted to to focus on these three. And we're going to start out with code STEMI, um, which in some hospitals may be just termed STEMI or uh, MI or, you know, something related to heart attack, obviously. But so let's say, for example, you have your patient and they, what are the, what are the typical signs or what are, what are some signs of, of, um, of a heart attack? chest pain, shortness of breath, diaphoresis. So your patient calls out, they're, they're complaining of, of these symptoms. And in some cases, women can complain of like have atypical symptoms like back pain, epigastric pain, indigestion. So pay attention to those things. But you suspect something cardiac is going on with your patient. Um, you get an EKG, a 12-lead EKG. A STAT 12-lead EKG. A STAT 12-lead EKG. And the EKG shows an acute MI or... ST segment elevated myocardial infarction. That's what the STEMI, STEMI stands for. Yeah. Um, this is this is a big emergency. Yes. What do you do? Drop everything, <laughs> cry, and then <laughs> no, you gotta wait to cry later. Yeah, you gotta wait to cry later. Yeah. Right. But this is something where the 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 diagnosis to the time from diagnosis to intervention is critical. And the goal is to have the diagnosis, the time of diagnosis to them getting to the cath lab and getting angioplasty, balloon, stent, whatever, is 90 minutes. So you have, the clock is ticking. Yes. So what are you going to do? Well, you're obviously going to notify the physician, um, the attending physician, because they need to review the EKG or have a cardiologist review the EKG in order, most of the time, to call the cath team in. You're also going to notify your rapid response team. Most hospitals have rapid response teams, so you need to utilize them because you're in a, you're going to need an extra set of hands because yeah, there's a lot of things you need to do. And they're really experienced in running those things. Right. So they're a wonderful, wonderful resource, especially if Maybe you don't work on a cardiac floor, or maybe you've never had an issue like this. Or before. this is the first time you're coming across this situation. Yeah, yeah. What, the rapid response, super wonderful resource if your hospital has that. Um, so they're going to kind of help you out. And sometimes they're going to delegate to you on what you need. Let me emphasize, this is why in a hospital, your patients should have some kind of IV access. 
There should be no excuse why your patient doesn't have an IV. Yeah, I mean, I can't think of other than maybe a normal postpartum ready to go home. Maybe, but (laughs) I mean, I guess if you're on a medical floor, because patients now who stay in the hospital are are sicker than they used to be. There's a reason why you're having to stay in the hospital. So you need to have some kind of working IV. You don't need to be wasting time on trying to find IV access. And in this case, you should try to get at least two Mm -hmm. peripheral IVs. Um. So what's going to happen in the meantime, they've noted, they've activated the STEMI, the CATH team is coming in. You need to follow MONA, which is the acronym for morphine, oxygen, nitro, and aspirin. So your patient's going to get um, 325 of chewable aspirin. Usually it's four baby aspirin, which adds up to 324 milligrams of aspirin. You're going to be put on oxygen. They're going to get nitroglycerin. Oh, before this, take your... take patient's vital signs get their blood pressure sats put them on a monitor i don't care if it's the defibrillator they need to be on some kind of monitor because if this is a true mi they can go into some kind of some kind of lethal arrhythmia very very quickly yeah so like waiting for the whole process of calling telemetry to get a telemetry box and waiting around for it like that's not like putting them on the defibrillator is probably a lot safer than waiting the 20 30 minutes it'll take yeah to get that telemetry box yeah and usually the rapid response nurse or the lead nurse who's assisting you will will get that going um but they need to be on some kind of monitor Mm -hmm. with some kind of ekg even if it's three leads monitoring um so you're going to get their vital signs they're going to get aspirin nitroglycerin for pain or morphine for pain if they're not super hypotensive um all this is happening at the same time they're getting stat labs drawn and in some cases now, patients are getting a beta blocker IV, like a uh, low presser. Oh, really? And some kind of heparin, like IV push one time, or maybe they're even started on a heparin infusion. But this is all in, in preparation for getting them to the cath lab. So when the cath team is there, you are ready to roll in with that patient. That patient gets put on the, the cath table, and they're ready to go. Mm. Um, that's just... You know, that's just kind of touching the, the, the big points of, of a STEMI. And just because your EKG says STEMI doesn't mean I've come across these situations as a rapid response nurse where the nurse like activated the code STEMI pager and because she, she the EKG interpreted an MI. No, those aren't always act- accurate. They're not always accurate. And then the cath team got called in when the patient really didn't need to go to the cath lab. So make sure your hospital has a specific policy on how this is done. But usually a physician, particularly a cardiologist, activates Mm. a STEMI within the hospital. It's different when they are out in the field, like when EMS activates a code STEMI, because a lot of times cardiologists now can just look at a 12-lead EKG over their phone Remotely. Yeah. But what if what if the patient goes through this and they're in a hospital that doesn't have a cath lab? So a lot of times they're started on a heparin infusion, heparin drip, some kind of fibrolytic, uh-huh. and they may be transported to a higher level of care. or like a, 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 Yeah, like fast. So another thing that needs to be considered, and I'm glad you mentioned it because I completely forgot about it and I wrote about it, um, was they're going to need to get their chart copied. Now, that should not, you know, keep the patient from 
getting to another facility, you know, not having the chart copied, but that needs to be done mm. um, so they can review it, especially the EKGs and the labs. Um, and as a nurse, you need to know, um, as a nurse, you need to know what time they got said drugs, aspirin, right. when their last nitro was, um, things like that. And what we're going to do, too, with these show notes, I'm going to make sure we have a link to kind of where we're getting this information. It's not really just kind of pulled yeah. out of thin air, but it's um, there's an American Heart Association has a very clear and simple algorithm for acute coronary syndrome. Which AKA, covers MI. Yeah, which yeah. covers this. So we're going to put a link to that. So because this may change from now right. versus when you're listening to this, but these are just pretty general. But the big thing about this, the big take home is this is hugely time sensitive and um it's important not to kind of like uh, wait wait on things. Like you got to take a very active role when you notice this is going on with your patient. Yeah, and time is said organ. So, mm-hmm. you know, the longer this is not dealt with or managed or there's no intervention, the more risk of of um, myocardial infarction, ischemia, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that's that's MI. Yeah. What, what else you got for us? Um, now let's go on to code stroke. And in our previous episodes, we've talked a lot about strokes. Because we love neuro. But this is time is brain. <laughs> time is brain, people. And this is one of, one of those next, uh, this is one of those very time sensitive things. And actually what's funny is there's a lot of research on um, calling code strokes out in the field. So patients present with stroke symptoms and EMS is notified. But there's not a lot of research on in-house code strokes, meaning mm. a patient in the hospital is showing stroke-like symptoms and, you know, a code stroke is activated, the patient gets TPA or whatever. There's not a lot of research showing how effective that is. Or interesting. If it's, it's, so it, that was something I found that, yeah, was very interesting. Um, so let's talk about stroke symptoms. And different hospitals may use some kind of different they don't they may use some kind of initial stroke assessment criteria like the Cincinnati hospital oh and then the min scale or the fast you know fast yeah. scale or whatever but essentially signs and symptoms of a stroke are facial, facial droop. droop arm drift slurred speech um headache headache um of course not wait hold on don't call a code stroke whenever a patient has a headache no uh, but i'm sorry <laughs> that in, in, when you're looking at the clinical picture analysis uh, too can be yeah weakness um but the big the huge thing when you think your patient has a co- has is having a stroke the first thing you do is you get a blood sugar and you make sure they're not being and get hypo- their vital signs and their vitals you want to make sure they're not being hype it's not actually hypoglycemia because hypoglycemia symptoms can be very similar to stroke symptoms so you want the brain utilizes straight up glucose for Mm -hmm. for its energy so if you don't have enough glucose then your brain's not getting enough glucose so yeah um you need to have a blood sugar still notify the physician right away and notify rapid response because they're gonna once again you're gonna need another set of hands to help facilitate getting this patient appropriate intervention Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. So you come across this patient and you walk into their room and they're talking funny and they're not moving their right side. You've gotten their vital signs. You've gotten their blood sugar. All that's good. You've notified the MD. You've called rapid response. What's what's next? Um, you should 
once again, it's always important to have established IVs. I'm not saying let this prolong getting your patient to CAT scan because that's going to come next, but you, your, your physician should be putting in orders or getting, you should be getting an order for a stat head CT because just like when they're coming in from outside, if they're coming into the emergency room, you want to get that patient to head CT within 25 minutes. You also need to know or have a night. You should also, you should know when their last known normal time was. It's Mm -hmm. so important. And that's why like hospitals really emphasize hourly rounding now, you know, don't leave your patient unattended for four hours because Mm. Because that's only how often you have to assess them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's why it's really important that hourly rounds are done and the patient is checked on so that, um, you know, an hour ago they were fine and talking to me. So I know an hour ago they were this. Um, Going off of what you said, though, about getting them a CT, it needs to be done in 25 minutes. So I want to make sure that people know, though, that doesn't mean you put it in order for transport to come take them to CT. This nope. is an emergency. So you need how whatever your process is you have got someone has to be with that patient when they're going to yes. CT and getting this yes. scan. Yes, the nurse should accompany that patient. And you that nurse should have help taking that patient to CT. Don't wait on transport. Right. Um all too often it's well let's get transport here. No, this no. is an emergency. Time is brain and someone else can watch your other patients while you deal with this patient who is actively having a stroke. Yeah, and your goal, and unlike the 90 minutes for a STEMI, the goal from onset of symptoms to getting appropriate drug if they need it is 60 minutes. Um, and they're actually working on reducing that, too. Oh, no way. You know what was interesting? <laughs> yeah, like, they wow. There's, I think I saw um, Vanderbilt, when they have a in like outside facility code stroke, they don't even come, like they basically, the EMS takes them straight to the CT. Mm. So their time to CT is like less than 10 minutes. And then like their their door, what they call door to CT, and then door to needle time is like like 30 minutes. Which is incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. And I mean needle time as in giving them TPA. Yeah. TPA, yes. Um, so you get, you get. You get your patient down to CT. That CT is being read. You're wheeling them back up. Um, there's also going to be new. There's going to a slew of labs that are going to be ordered. Um, once again, have have good IV access. Um, have your patient on a monitor, getting their vital signs frequently. Um, like every 15 and the, minutes. Frequently. And usually a neurologist is here at that point, and they're getting you know a, a history of the patient to see if the patient is an appropriate candidate for for TPA. Yeah, because their big questions are, when was the last known well? Yes. Are they on any blood thinners? Yes. And nurses should know that. Mm-hmm. The nurse should know that. And if they're hypertensive, you know, typically they're giving labetalol, and they can only have so many doses before they're excluded from TPA. So it's in blood pressure. It's very important to know their blood pressure. Um, so when, let's say they are a candidate for TPA, um, different hospitals have different, usually pharmacy brings up the TPA. Sometimes they, the TPA is kept in a little special emergency oh, box yes. and the pharmacist brings up the box and opens it up and gets the TPA mixed and right in the room and you're so ready to cool. go. Now, if you are also working in a facility that's not considered a primary stroke center, they're going to be transferred to a stroke center. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, especially if they're like an appropriate patient for intervention. 
like a thrombectomy. A thrombectomy. Like we talked about in an earlier episode, neuro. Um, I'll put a I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Which one it was? I think it was our neuro tips for newbies part two. I think. Yeah. Um, am I leaving anything out? Getting the chart copied because most likely they will go to. But I think all hospitals have the capability of administering TPA. They might. It, they should be able to give TPA. What probably has changed most since um, we started giving TPA is the fact that it used to be they got TPA at that facility before they transferred, and now there's this whole drip and ship policy. Yeah. So they get the TPA started, and they're being transported with the TPA infusing. So they really minimize the amount of time that the TPA is not on board. Uh, so and you keep in mind, we're talking about this in January of 2017. So if you're listening to this in, like, 2018, this Things oh, may have changed. Yeah. So and hopefully important. there will be more research with, obviously, in-house code strokes. And I feel like a lot of times in-house code strokes are missed. I know I was working in an ICU at another hospital, and my patient, um, I totally did this wrong. But I got everybody at the bedside all at once. It was awesome. But <laughs> I had a patient who had these sudden neuro code stroke symptoms and I paged a code stroke. I didn't go about the paging process the right way, but literally I had pharmacy, neurology, everybody there all at once before I even went to CT scan. I love it. It was awesome. The patient ended up not being a candidate for TPA, <laughs> but I was like, okay, well, you know, yeah, but, um, and, and if you're not, I don't know, I don't want to say call, don't, you know, if you're not sure it never, <laughs> you, 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 would you rather... don't want to cry wolf all the time, but um, so you'd rather response is a really good. It tool. is, yes, it is to get another set of it eyes. Is. But sometimes, you know, the rapid response. There's sometimes such vague neurological symptoms. Yeah, and rapid response is typically a strong critical care nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, but chances are you're gonna that patient's gonna get a CT at right. least. Right, and, that, and that's least. the biggest thing is you know you re- what really is the most important first of all is getting that CT scan. Yeah. And last known well time used to pretty much exclude people from TPA or intervention if they didn't know it. And this whole wake up stroke phenomenon, whether that be they're coming in from home, they woke up not normal, or they're in a hospital at night and the night the daytime nurse is coming in doing the first assessment, they've been sleeping all night. Um, they 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 can do a CT perfusion study where they actually look and see um, any changes in the brain, changes of perfusion of the brain to really determine whether or not they're a good candidate for TPA and or intervention. Mm. So the other thing is, is don't, if you work on a floor, on a stroke floor, or on a cardiac floor, you have experience seeing patients who maybe had a stroke, don't think, well, they can't get TPA anyway, or they can't get intervention anyway. No, 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 no. Notify the appropriate parties, let them get their CAT scan so they can gather all the information to determine really what the appropriate treatment is. Yeah, it's not up to us to say, oh, well, we would have missed it anyway. Like, we yeah. need to right. notify appropriately. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and I will also put a link to um, uh, the American yeah. Stroke Heart, Association, stroke association yeah. here just to make sure what if something does change, you know, that that's going to be continually updated so you can take a look at that in our show notes, so. Yeah, there are a lot of amazing research studies that are being done that they regularly update guidelines. And, um, you know, there's the International Stroke Conference where they talk about a lot of things. They did a lot of updates to intervention, the intervention process, 
Um, there's a lot more patients that are having interventions done now than there ever were before based on the research findings that have been done. So between the American Stroke Association, the International Stroke Conference, I mean, there's there's a lot of resources out there that are available to help. Yeah, yeah, so. And if you, you know, when you're coming on as a new nurse into whatever floor you're working on, look at the policies for those you mm-hmm. know, emergency situations. There's specific policies in place and there's specific steps. But just know that it's it's time sensitive it's you know time is brain so can we, let's go to our third scenario but arguably it, I, the other two are pretty obvious i think mm-hmm. typically but this one is a can be a little more subtle code sepsis and yeah. honestly when i was a floor nurse i didn't really understand sepsis yeah and what is very interesting now is sepsis is now a core measure i believe or i don't know if it's or actually, getting ready yeah, to be. i think it's I think we're getting there. I don't think we're there yet. So it's going to be something that if it's going to be, it's a core measure in that the appropriate interventions, diagnostic tools, if they're not done in a certain amount of time, you're going to, you know, your hospital's going to get dinged or you may not get reimbursement, certain mm-hmm. reimbursement, kind of like CHF core measures, stroke core measures, acute coronary syndrome core measures, all that stuff. Sepsis is now being looked at. And a quick little core measure thing, like basically there's this ex- standard of standard of care that should be met where, hey, if a patient has CHF, they should be discharged on an ACE inhibitor or whatever. Right. Or have they a should reason, have all this stuff done, yeah. Yeah, to make sure, to, to best manage that based off of research and, and the government won't reimburse you if you're not doing that, basically. Right. Um, so that's kind of what a core measure is. I don't know if there's any other information about a core measure that you guys think is important for the new well, nurse to understand. I, I think that's just it, is that it's it's based off of a lot of research that's done that dictates, that makes sure every patient gets treatment mm-hmm. appropriately done. So um, if you had a um, acute coronary syndrome, then you should be discharged on a beta blocker. Right. And if they're not discharged on a beta blocker, then the doctor has to very specifically list why they're not on a beta blocker. Right. Um, or with stroke, they have to have aspirin, ischemic stroke. They have to have aspirin within 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So if they don't get aspirin, then you need to document why. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, some patients stroke, they need to get an aspirin, but if they had a hemorrhagic stroke, they can't get aspirin. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a that's an appropriate exclusion. But it's they are very specific. It covers things from medications to um, nursing interventions, to patient education as well. And yeah. it's a big deal because it's, it profoundly affects um, reimbursement. Yeah. So if we're, if, and, and us nurses at the bedside, it's our job to make sure these things are done, not only done, but documented appropriately. Like, you know, I've had times where I educated appropriately, but I didn't document that I educated. And then I got in trouble because I didn't document it, but I actually did it. Um, so it's a, important to do that because you know the hospital will lose money if we're not doing that stuff and the reason that we're supposed to do that stuff they stop our research so yeah and it improves patient outcomes right right you so know, it, it reduces risk of readmission yeah etc so it's like you know before these were in place it was like oh no matter what if a stroke came in they got blank amount of reimbursement but it's like they don't want to reward people for necessarily giving not the most um research evidence-based evidence-based you know care care. right all right so sepsis so (laughs) um sepsis kills about two hundred and sixty thousand americans each year and it is also the most expensive inpatient cost in hospitals that is a big Um, like hold up whoa that's a lot and these 
um, this data that I'm giving, you can go look it up um, at the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, which is through the um, Society of Critical Care Medicine and sepsis.org, which is Sepsis Alliance. Okay. And there's a wealth of information there. But the reason why I want to talk about code sepsis, I had, a, I had a, as a new nurse, a very specific situation where my patient was septic. It went, it went hours and hours and hours and hours unrecognized. And finally, when my patient really went downhill, had to go to ICU, the patient ended up not making it. And I'll never forget it. So I think when you're a nurse on the floor, it's something that's easily kind of overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, and what sepsis is, it's, it's our body's, it's, it's our, our immune system is, is fighting an infection, but it, you get this overwhelming response to the infection that it's actually starting to cause organ damage, whether it be to kidneys, liver, lung, you know, wherever, um, your brain. Um, there's organ involvement, multiple organs involved. Um, so it's not as the pathogen, it's the response. It's the response. It's our immune system literally goes haywire and our organs don't get perfused. So we get organ damage. Um, 40% of patients with severe sepsis do not survive. So this is why it's, it's a really big deal. Um, recognizing it early so that the appropriate interventions can take place. Um, so the Society of Critical Care Medicine has this special criteria to as- assist in suggesting sepsis is present. Um, and it's kind of important, it's kind of up to the nurses to be kind of the eyes for these this criteria. Um, this criteria is called sepsis-related organ failure assessment. Um, And if a patient has a suspected infection, whether it be a UTI, pancreatitis, appendicitis, um, I don't know, a diabetic foot ulcer, pneumonia, if they have something like, if they have a suspected infection and they meet two out of the three following criteria, the criteria I'm about to bring up, then we should be looking at determining if this patient is, is, is septic. Um. So the criteria include altered mental status. So any acute change in their, in their mental status. They were alert and oriented yesterday, and now they're confused. Um, two, their respiration rate greater than tw- 22 breaths a minute. And that's breathing fast, guys. If you have ever just, like, breathed normally and counted your own respiration rate, you should really only be breathing, like, 14 to 16 to 18 breaths a minute. Breathing yeah. 22 breaths a minute is pretty fast. And it's funny because... When people chart respiratory rates, everybody somehow is eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but but twenty that's that's, that's and fast. you should be able to actually visualize it. Um and then they have a systolic blood pressure less than one hundred millimeters of mercury. So any two out of the three of those criteria and a suspected infection should trigger looking into seeing seeing if this patient is septic so or i guess you're probably going to go into that but it's like okay so what does that really look like looking into it and that's going to i guess differ about your hospital but hopefully you know you let the physician know and then they you should let the physician know and you should also notify rapid response 
even if you're, you know, unsure, call rapid response and say, hey, I'm, I've got this patient. This, these are some of the things that they're going, you know, they're, they're just, they're not as awake today or they're sleepier and, you know, it should trigger a rapid response call and a rapid response nurse can come help. And, and even if the patient. As well as notifying the MD. And even if the patient seems okay, but maybe they're breathing quick, but they're laying there and they seem okay, like, don't let the con- patient convince you out of it, I guess, if they're, like, in a good mood or, why well, they seem fine. But right. it's like, wait a sec, if they're a little confused and they got a little pressure, like, hold on, this technically qualifies. Let's ex- We can't hurt by exploring it more. Right. But we can definitely hurt by brushing it off, I guess. Right. That's what I want to make make sure you guys know and it's time is is organ yeah once again it's all about perfusion so so you've come across this situation well what do i do now you've notified the md call rapid response once again make sure your patient has working ivs um (laughs) notice a thing that's elizabeth's soapbox (laughs) yes yes (laughs) well i think coming from rapid response i was true i was so surprised at how many patients would not have an IV and they were legit in the hospital for something serious and they just got an okay not to have an IV. And I understand people have four veins and all that other stuff, but anyway, um, prepare for your patient to get a ton of labs drawn, ABG, blood cultures, um, a lactic acid level. If your patient has a lactic acid level of greater than or equal to four, that's a hot, that's, that's pretty diagnosed diagnostic of of that's, that's diagnosis that's of like twice what's considered normal guys. yeah anything yeah, greater so, than two right. two is but i think now the criteria says greater than four septic hmm. shock is present they also ha- they'll also get an abg to look at their um oxygen level um anyway so um you'll also start getting your patient a fluid bolus there's actual measurements now i think it's 30 30 cc's per kg yes, yes fluid bolus and then they are to get antibiotics. And the antibiotics are super important. All of this needs to be done within a three-hour time frame. And chances are they're going to be moving to a higher level of care. Absolutely. Um, if they're not already on an intermediate floor, they're going to go to an intermediate floor, depending on how bad their pressure is, and then um, to an ICU, especially if they're not responding to fluids after three hours and they need to go on, on some kind of pressors. And have more further interventions done for this sepsis. Um, so once again, getting these these basic things: fluids, labs, antibiotics. And keep in mind too, you want to make sure you draw those cultures and labs before those antibiotics. Yeah, are make started. sure at least the cultures are done. Yeah, before the antibiotics are started. And sometimes, you know, if you have phlebotomy at your hospital. If, you, if those labs are put in stat, phlebotomy will get up there pretty quick. Mm-hmm. If if not, you may need to delegate that to another nurse to draw some to get it done. It's because so you want to, you don't want to wait on those, you don't want to wait forever, and those antibiotics are ready to go because the antibiotics are are gonna fight the infection right. and treat the cause of the sepsis, and that's what you want to get to. Um. Anyway, um, they'll need to be on some kind of monitor just till you know kind of what the plan is gonna be. Um. They may need a Foley so you can keep an uh, an accurate INO because um, a lot of times the kidneys are kind of the first thing that loses perfusion when when you get hypotensive. Um, 
and um, transferred to a higher level of care. I mentioned that already. Um, other things you guys want to add? Um, well, I, I think the biggest thing and, and one of the biggest themes that you hear from these three specific examples are that is the fact that this is all very, very, number one, time sensitive. This is not something that you are going to put on your back burner. Oh, let me go see my three patients that are, are so super easy to and quick to see. I can say, hey, you're doing okay, and then I've rounded. No, no, no. This is the patients that you need to, to come and spend the most time with mm -hmm. quickly. Um, the other thing is, is that recognition of all three of these is really, really important. So it goes back to learning your pathophysiology again. So knowing what's normal at least mm -hmm. so you can – Identify what's abnormal. You need to know your patient's normal so you can identify what's abnormal. Yeah, and if, even if you're in labor and delivery or postpartum and rarely see this kind of stuff, those patients get septic too. Yeah. Those patients have strokes. New moms. Yeah. They have, um, yeah, they have MIs. So mm -hmm. just because you don't see it very often or maybe you think you're in a specialty where you don't, um, you might be excluded from it, this is applicable to every patient in the hospital. Yep. Yeah. I can't think of one that it would not be. Children get septic. Yes. Children have strokes. Yes. Oh, that's so sad. But yes, they do. Yes. So it's so if you're in pediatrics, this also applies to you. There might be some different numbers with the sepsis. I'm not sure, but this stuff is sepsis applicable does to everyone. Not discriminate. And when you if you go to that uh, sepsis.org website, um, it's the Sepsis Alliance. You will read stories all the time about. You know, you know, 17-year-olds who were playing soccer out on a turf field or whatever and slid and got, like, a turf burn and ended up getting a massive infection in their leg. It turned out to be staph or whatever. And then they're septic shock, and then they die. Yeah. Because it wasn't recognized. Mm -hmm. So, and you can, I mean, I think you can, I mean, you can go downhill super quick, like within 12 to 24 hours in some situations, if the yeah. infection is just taking over that quickly. So um, sepsis is kind of, besides IV, sepsis is kind of my soapbox. Because I felt like, too, as a rapid response nurse, respiratory distress was usually our number one call, but two was some kind of underlying sepsis that was actually going on with the mm -hmm. patient. That was, and it was things that, you know, like, I mean, the patient, was hypotensive for hours. And I'm not talking like a blood pressure of 96 over 50 because that's sometimes that's a good blood pressure in Some a healthy person. Normal. But I'm talking like 70s over 40s, you know, for hours and uh, hours. And you're like, why wasn't anything done? Yeah. So that's not a if I can sleeping preach, low. No, no. When your map's sitting there and it's less than like 55, you know. And, uh, <sighs> so map less than 65, your organs are not being yeah. adequately perfused. Yeah. So if you're a patient... Has a map of 55, regardless of if they're like, if that's what's been running, <laughs> that's the worst. That's the worst thing is that's what it has been. Well, doesn't mean it's not a problem. So um, we're going to, I'll put some links up for you guys to look at a little closer so that you can kind of make sure, you know, you're looking at the most updated information. Again, we recorded this in January of 2017. And as you guys know, things change quickly. So I hope this has been very helpful for you. So check out freshiron.com slash podcast for some more links and information. And uh, thanks, guys. Stay fresh.